Now you talk about terror. Welcome to another podcast from the Chris Hedges Report. What about me? I'm Chris Hedges, and you can find more of my work at chrishedges.substack.com. There was once a wing of the Democratic Party that stood up to the war industry. J. William Fulbright, George McGovern, uh, G. McCarthy, Mike Gravel, William Proxmire, of course, Dennis Kucinich. Uh, but that was largely decades ago. The new Democrats, especially with the presidency of Bill Clinton, became shills not only for corporate America but the arms industry. No weapons system is too costly. No war, no matter how disastrous, goes unfunded. The massive military budget, $858 billion in military spending allocated for fiscal year 2023, is an increase of $45 billion over the Biden administration's budget request and nearly $80 billion more than the amount appropriated by Congress for the current fiscal year. It just keeps growing. When 30 members of the party's progressive caucus recently issued a call for Joe Biden to negotiate with Vladimir Putin, they were forced by the party leadership and a warmongering media to back down and rescind their letter. What happened to the Democratic Party? Why has it become impossible to question war and the massive expenditures on arms, why is such questioning political suicide? Why can't a Democrat ask, especially at a time of economic hardship and huge deficits, how much we are going to divert to the war in Ukraine, which has already consumed some $60 billion as much as we spend on the State Department and AID with no end in sight? Joining me to discuss the extinction of the anti-war Democrat is Dennis Kucinich, a former presidential candidate who served eight terms in the House of Representatives before the Democratic Party gerrymandered his district to ensure his defeat. Um, Dennis, you were consistently one of the very few Democrats who hearkened back to that great era uh, of those I mentioned, McGovern, G. McCarthy, and others, Proxmire, who stood up to the war industry. You paid a very heavy political price for that, not only... uh, being pushed out of Congress, but even when you were in Congress, I believe you were not allowed to caucus with the Democrats, if I have that correct, uh, courtesy of Pelosi. Uh, but let's go back. Uh, there was a moment in time when uh, the Democratic Party had uh, fierce peace candidates, anti-war candidates. Of course, 1972, McGovern becomes the nominee. Uh, what happened? Well, uh, first of all, uh, thank you very much for the opportunity to be on your show. And I I think, uh, you know, this is the perfect show for me to do because it's not just a matter of uh, having a conversation with the choir. It's about taking the discussion to a higher level to try to describe for people what's actually happening, what can happen. Uh, With respect to the Democratic Caucus, though, uh, I found my way into the meetings. (laughs) <laughs> uninvited <laughs> because, because I, I you know I, it, it wasn't really an attempt to shut me out as much as uh it was uh uh you know who who brought this guy in but but really you know i will say this about uh speaker uh pelosi uh that we may have had a difference of opinion on some of these uh, uh spending issues that helped to fuel wars but the thing that i always did was I always let the leadership know ahead of time, I don't agree with you. I'm taking a different approach. I'm going to go to the floor. This is what I'm going to say, you know, whether you like it or not. And 
<laughs> they appreciated the warning. They didn't appreciate my uh, uh, speeches. They, I'm sure, didn't appreciate my votes for the most part. But um, to me, what's happened with the uh, Democratic Party, I think as soon as the Democratic Party uh, made a determination, could have been 35, 40 years ago, that they were going to take corporate uh, contributions. That that wiped out any distinction between the two parties because in Washington, uh, he or she who pays the piper, you know, plays the tune. And that's what's happened. So there isn't that much of a difference in terms of the uh, two parties when it comes to war, except notably, partisan reasons or not, there were over 50 Republicans who voted against the last uh, tranche of money that went to fuel the war in Ukraine. And I, th I felt that was notable. And of course, uh, the uh, potential speaker of the House, should the Republicans win, uh, uh, will be um, Kevin McCarthy, who has uh, made it a point to say that he's going to look at that funding. Well, let's talk about the past. So uh, you had uh, significant opposition to the Pentagon budget, weapon systems were questioned. Was it, in essence, corporate money uh, that was uh, the factor in essentially driving Wellstone, driving these figures out of the House and the Senate, or were there other reasons? Certainly plays a part. I mean, let's face it, right now, the uh, arms industry is making money hand over fist with the expansion of war. That's how they make their money. And of course, they can put money into certain campaigns, but that's not all it's about. Uh, the, uh, the request to fund a war goes into the uh, larger, heavily mediated environment which supports a war. And if you stand against the funding, then your constituents who, uh, who may be great Americans, uh, look at that and they say, well, why aren't you supporting America? And I think that members of Congress are always concerned about being caught between between on what their constituents think as opposed to what they, the doubts that they have. And so uh, with respect to the Democratic Caucus, uh, I, this event of uh, retraction of the letter uh, by a significant caucus within the Democratic Party uh, is a new benchmark of uh, kind of a slavish obedience to the um, status quo within the party, which then supports uh, war, and, ha and a majority of Republicans at this point are supporting war. So you have Congress uh, supporting war, and this is the way it's been. Seymour Melman writes about the distortion of the economy by the war industry. He points out that one of the crucial tactics that the war industry uses is to diversify where weapons are made. Uh, I believe uh, F-35s are made in Vermont. Uh, and this really ties the hands of House and Senate members because it, 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 it becomes at a constituent level a debate about jobs. Well, it, it is a, a factor. Can't can ignore it. So what happens is uh, when the uh, uh, Pentagon budget comes up, there are a parade of, of 
of various uh, businesses, small and large, who will make appointments with the Congress uh, person or staff and lay out how many jobs are in the district and, and, uh, and how important it is to a district business to have this budget passed. I mean, I mean, I had that happen to me. And it was, uh, you know, I invariably have to inform my constituent that I didn't support uh, the war that was going, this was going to be fueling. And so I wasn't going to vote for the budget. I will tell you this, Chris, that I may have once, when I first started in Congress, uh, voted for a, a budget that went to the Pentagon. But it didn't take me long to figure out what the, what the racket was. I had a hearing I went to as a member of the Government Oversight Committee in which an inspector general uh, testified that there were over a trillion dollars worth of accounts in the Pentagon that couldn't be reconciled, that they had over 1,100 different accounting systems, <laughs> deliberately, I'm suppo- I suppose, constructed so as to make obfuscation a rule of the day. So from that moment on, I just said, wait a minute, they're not keeping track of how this money's spent. Why in the world should I vote for, for, for this budget? So from that point on, right through to the conclusion of a 16-year uh, uh, service in the United States Congress, I didn't vote for a single budget of the, of the Pentagon because, or any of the supplemental appropriations to keep wars going because I knew it was a racket. I knew there would be billions of dollars thrown away. And, you know, I can cite chapter and verse, Inspector General's reports, once the money goes out of this country, Overseas, on behalf, you know, whether it's Iraq or whatever adventure we were in, the money's blowing. The thing that I was always concerned about, even more than the money, was the fact that we were committing American servicemen and service women, in the case of Iraq, to uh, a lie. And and the constituency that I had in Congress, Chris, primarily working class men and women, many veterans halls, uh, people really believe strongly in America, uh, serve the country themselves or their fathers and grandfathers served. And, and they, they support the United States of America. So I'm in Congress and I'm, I'm seeing what actually is going on. And I'm going, wait a minute. You know, I'm not a sucker. And I'm looking at this and I'm saying, no, this is wrong. And then I have to go home and explain my vote. And I had some people who were unhappy because they thought I wasn't being patriotic enough. And, and that's what a congressperson is supposed to do. But the truth is, the members of Congress are always under enormous pressure, not you know, locally from their constituents, from uh, uh, contractors within their constituency, uh, from the, the mediated environment and, and the party. And, and so it's a rare individual. And I'm not you know, doing this to elevate myself. But it's a rare individual who will go against that because you risk, uh, at times, you may risk your political career. Well, if if you won't take their money, uh, there's always someone else who will, uh, and they will throw a lot of that money at a candidate to take you down. Well, that's true, no matter if you're talking about the arms industry, the oil companies, the um, healthcare industry. Uh, there was a congressional candidate in 1972 who ran against a darling of the AMA. And uh, and he told the AMA when they came to him as, uh, look, give the other guy the money because I'm not going to help you. 
Well, they did. And this uh, young uh, congressional candidate lost a close race. That was me, by the way. <laughs> so I, I understand the price that you might have to pay for not going with the crowd. But my feeling is that public office comes and goes. I mean, if you, you know, who are we if we won't take a stand? Who are any of us if we're not willing to put it all on the line in any given vote and say, look, this isn't only what I believe and this is who I am. And and I'm someone who uh, I don't feel I know more than anybody else. I do my homework, Chris. I make sure that I any vote that I take is informed. And and as I did when I led the effort against uh, the war in Iraq and. That's not the way it goes in Congress. A lot of people are flying by the seat of their pants or they look at the, the vote board to see how everyone else is voting. Because Congress is a place of tremendous peer pressure. And, and the votes go right up on this. Uh, most people don't know this, but the votes are, in a, imagine a big gym and the votes go up on this big wall, okay? And people, uh, the lights go on, green light for yes, yellow light for I'm not sure, and red light for no. And everybody can see how everybody else is voting. It helps enforce party discipline, and it helps uh, uh, it, it, it helps to feed the herd instinct inside, inside the Congress. It's a lot of pressure there. Let's talk about the effect of unchecked militarism on our civil society and our democracy. Well, we live in a in a time where there's an acceleration of polarized thinking. It's uh, us versus them, whoever they are. And uh, the government helps to feed that. The government uh, generates uh, perceptions. And, uh, and people think, well, you know, there, there, must, be, there must be a reason for, for, this, uh, uh, for the government's position on this war. Uh, the, the truth of the matter is that we're in a uh, heavily militarized society driven by greed, uh, lust for profit, and wars are being created just to keep fueling that, and it 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 moves right into uh, this idea of, of 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 this old idea of a manifest destiny, and then you kind of leap into the 21st century, where there are still people believe who believe, as in the project for a new you know a new American century, that. It has to be that America must rule the world, that it is our destiny. I mean, that is such old thinking, but that's where we are. And we, um, we see, we don't always consider that we're inheritors, not only of a physical world, but we're inheritors of a, uh, of a consciousness. We're inheritors of thought structures. And the thought structures that we've inherited no longer serve a practical purpose in this country. We are, are, we move into a false consciousness of uh, fear, of, of, uh, of separation from the rest of, of the world. See, I, I see the world as one. I, I, I think that human unity is the, is the, is the truth that surrounds all of us. And when we start separating ourselves and we engage in this polarized thinking, polarized thinking is a precursor of war. And so we, we need to try to go back to, uh, it's a really a spiritual principle that says that, look, uh, we're all one. We're interconnected. We're interdependent. And the world is one. Uh, you know, we may have a, 
different races, colors, creeds, but there's a, there's a oneness. And, and if you look at the first motto of the country, e pluribus unum, out of many, one, it, it's the paradox of a unity in multiplicity. And many people can't handle that, but, the, but that's, that's the truth. So we're, when we go to war, we're living a lie. We're, we're separating ourselves from, from part of humanity. It's a belief that we don't have an ability to be able to solve things, and somehow uh, the power of our weapons is greater than the power of our of our reason, or even deeper, the power of our heart. And, and so that's where you know I've gone away from the orthodoxy, which is now part of politics. It says, "Well, keep that war going," and for whatever reason, we're going to dom- we're going to beat the Russians, we're going to beat the Chinese. What we're beating ourselves. To what extent are these conflicts, and I would include the expansion of NATO, driven by this lust for greed on the part of the war industry and the arms manufacturers? You know, when I was in Congress, I put in legislation to um, uh, forbid the United States to uh, to go into any war that NATO was operating because I felt that it was a subversion of the constitutional principle in Article 1, Section 8, which is that Congress of the United States has the power to, to take our country from a condition of peace to war. That, that was in the Constitution. NATO has evolved. It wasn't, it was first a defensive organization. Then after Clinton, it turned into an offensive organization. And it has become now a kind of a sock puppet for uh, West, Western powers, uh, notably my own dear country, the United States. And as a result, uh, NATO uh, punches above its weight, uh, makes statements that are uh, ridiculous. And uh, look, I will make a prediction right here that as a result of, of NATO and the EU's role in helping to fuel uh, this, this war in Ukraine, give it a couple years, but there won't be a, a NATO and there won't be an EU as a result. Why? Well, first of all, look at what's happened. The U.S. actually, you know, I think the way this unfolded uh, in Ukraine, you know, we all know from 2014 how the U.S. engineered a coup and, and knocked out uh, the Ukrainian government and put in one that would serve the U.S. interest, which was to uh, nullify the, um, the power of the constituency in, in eastern Ukraine, which was uh, Russian-speaking. And they, they wanted to basically, uh, by any means necessary, uh, keep that uh, uh, out of uh, influencing the policies of the region, in which they did. I mean, 14,000, by some estimates, uh, Russian-speaking Ukrainians were killed from 2014 until uh, 2021. Uh, most Americans have no idea about that. But, but anyhow... Once the once the U.S. Uh, once the intelligence started to say, "Hey, we can knock Russia out like like that," okay, we'll crush Russia economically. These sanctions are going to put Russia away, and the EU bought into it. What's the result? Well, the war goes on, but in the meantime, the uh, the sanctions have created a dramatic uh, increase in the cost of energy. Uh, plus to blow up the pipeline, that's another increase in the cost of energy. So you've, I've heard from people in Europe 
where they're seeing increases in, in basic energy costs anywhere from six to nine times of what it used to be. Businesses can't survive that. Individuals are, are under hardship. The pressure is going to go back on the government. This is going to cause a lot of problems with the EU. And NATO is there as, you know, a cat's paw for war. And frankly, people are going to say, well, who, who's NATO making decisions for me? I would imagine that already you're starting to see protests in Europe where people are saying, get out of the EU, get out of NATO, because they're, they're paying uh, an economic price right now for the misjudgment of the European officials who were coaxed into it by the U.S., and uh, this ends up being a nightmare, uh, a night, you know, not only for Europe, though, but we're getting visited with it somewhat here. Uh, you're seeing an increase in food prices, increases in gas prices, uh, the accelerant knock-on effect on inflation. Uh, interest rates have gone up. Mortgage rates uh, are gone up. There's a, there's a cycle of economic violence, which is visited on the people of this country who really don't have a straight story about what happened. In, in Ukraine. I represented Ukrainians in the United States Congress, and proudly so. I went to Ukraine. I met with people. I stood in the square in Ukraine in defense of journalists who were, who were under attack there, one of whom was killed, Gonzaga. And so I just felt that, you know, Ukrainians have a right to exist. They have a right to their own country. And uh, what's happened is this is being twisted, and suddenly Ukraine becomes a, a, a bloodbath of a chessboard where, where these innocent people are just being used as pawns in a, in a game of nations. And I resent that. I mean, I resent that on behalf of every, every decent person who's trying to keep their family together in Ukraine and who doesn't want to be dominated by anybody, U.S., Russia, anybody, and they just want to live their lives. But because there's a game of nations going on and the U.S. was concerned about Russia's pivot to Asia, well, guess what? This whole thing is blowing up in the face of the West. Russia's not, we, we forced Russia to pivot to Asia. And now, you know, Brazil, uh, Russia, India, uh, China, uh, South Africa, then Saudi Arabia, there's a whole new uh, world being formed. And the catalyst of it is the misjudgment that occurred about uh, about Ukraine and the effort to try to control U Ukraine uh, that began in 2014 that most people aren't aware of, I would say. Let's talk about the press, because you spoke about going back to your constituents as an anti-war candidate and feeling blowback. Uh, but isn't that because essentially we have a press that has locked out anti-war critics? Well, I think it was a librarian of Congress, Daniel Borston, who, who wrote a book about the uh, media being spear carriers for the government. And that was true generations ago, and it's true today. Uh, and, and that's a problem. When you don't have um, a, a when, you, when you don't have many alternatives that present a different point of view, you're locked into a, a worldview that might be based on, on a falsity. And I'll give you a, a great example. Go back to Iraq, because I was really involved in that, you know, in challenging the narrative right from the beginning. 
And, um, you know, I did my homework. I saw that back in and I gave Congress a memo on October 2nd, 2002, that said, look, there's no proof that Iraq has weapons of mass destruction. Uh, moreover, Iraq didn't have anything to do with 9-11, with Al-Qaeda's role in 9-11, didn't have the intention or capability of attacking the United States. So what is this about? And I talked to hundreds of members of Congress about it. But the drumbeat in the media, war, war, war from the White House, war, war, war. No one bothered, you know, the, and this is what so many people heard. It was just drowned out. And so, you know, I've saw this, I, I, I've seen this dynamic before. And the media, we have a heavily mediated society, even more so today than 20 years ago. There, there's, uh, there's, and, and we also know that the government can have legions of people working computers, sending out messages that praise those who are for the war and attack those who aren't. <laughs> you know, we're, we're living in a, in a hall of mirrors here when it comes to trying to find out what is really going on. And so how do you figure it out? Well, you, you do your homework, but you also have to trust your God, your intuition too. And, and when I, you know, when I looked at what happened in, in, um, in Iraq, that led me to understand what was happening in uh, Libya, what was happening in Syria. And, you know, and then I do some more homework. I'm, you know, uh, William Blum, Chalmers Johnson, and others who did the studies, case after case after case of U.S. interventions that were all about uh, lies. And our country, I love this country, and it is being uh, uh, it's, it's being done a disservice by people who in power who have made book with interest groups who are going forward just to cash in on war. And, uh, and, I, and I think it's horrific. And, and in this case, Chris, we're, uh, we're playing with the flash of World War III. Uh, you know, there are sometimes I think that people in the White House are like something out of uh, the Sorcerer's Apprentice. You know, they're playing with, they're, they're, they've taken this broom and they're moving out chemical forces around that are going beyond, their, that can easily go beyond their control. And, and you know, so I'm also concerned that things could spin out of control, with res- even now, with respect to uh, to Russia, with respect to China, uh, North Korea. Um, and what a tragedy. What a, an immense human tragedy when the truth of the matter is we, we must find a way to live together. As John Kennedy said, you know, we have to, you know, learn how to live together as brothers and sisters or we perish together as fools. I, I, I want to ask about these pimps of war, these shills for war. I covered the war in El Salvador. I had to deal with Elliot Abrams. Robert Kagan worked for him. They're wrong about everything. They were wrong about the interventions in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria with the so-called moderate rebels, Libya. And now they're beating the drums, of course, for endless war with Ukraine. It doesn't matter how uh, mistaken they were in the past. They are perpetuated. Their think tanks are perpetuated. They never lose their perches on uh, the cable talk shows. You've dealt with these people. I, I know some of them, Abrams and others. They are truly human mediocrities. Uh, and I would include the generals like Petraeus and others. And, and yet they're like this... Uh, bacteria or anti-resistant uh, bacteria that we can't uh, 
vanquish. Uh, talk about them. Well, you know, Chris, I see the way I look at it is that even people with whom I, I, I strongly disagree, and you just named a number of them, uh, I, I think we, we have to continue to find ways of showing people, you know, they've, they've, they've gone um, uh, astray and that we have to make an effort to bring them back. Now, how do you do that? Well, um, if there ever was a country that was in need of a process of truth and reconciliation, it's America. We, we really need to have people come forward and, and admit that they were wrong, that, you know, whatever their motivation was, so that we can heal this country. Because we're divided right now in this whole idea about, about war and, uh, uh, you know, this misuse of power. Uh, in some ways, a misunderstanding of the material world itself, that we think there's only so much and we have to control it. Uh, if you look at physics, the material world, you know, the, the, the universe keeps expanding. But you wouldn't know that talking to some people because their, their, their physics is a very confined, almost uh, uh, pre uh, uh, Galileo view of the world. Uh, Dennis, I just want to, just on the last two minutes, I mean, you talked about truth and reconciliation. There was a certain amount of accountability after the Vietnam War. I mean, we did, as a country, ask questions about ourselves that we hadn't asked before. And there was a brief period of time when I would argue we became a better country. Now there's no accountability. Uh, I spent seven years in the Middle East. I mean, millions of people's lives were destroyed, not to mention the tens of thousands of families in the United States who are caring for wounded and crippled veterans or lost loved ones, but there's no accountability at all. You know, uh, this is, uh, there, we must find a path to accountability or it's, it, it will be our undoing. Uh, you know, I, I made an attempt to uh, follow a procedure, which is one way of achieving accountability through the legislative process, and that is that I introduce articles of impeachment uh, of the president and the vice president. I was with you at the Cannon Building when you did that. Uh, you know, there were at least 48 articles uh, with respect to uh, President Bush and uh, a smaller number for uh, Vice President Cheney. Uh, the Democratic leadership, however, sent that to uh, uh, those those proposals to a committee, uh, never to be uh, discussed. See, we it's you know I, when I when I got on the floor of Congress and I gave hundreds of speeches opposed to uh, for, opposed to the war and and after the the war started and proposals to get out of Iraq and other speeches to not go to war against Iran and and each time there was a a, a, a kind of a uh, amnesia that took place, what Gore Vidal yeah. calls the United States of Amnesia, right. just takes place where people forget the the mistakes, not mistakes, the misdeeds of the past. And and unless we have some measure of accountability, uh, we're always going to be uh, uh, wearing the stain of of, uh, of of war waged against innocent people around the globe. And there's a point, Chris, where we have to start asking ourselves, what are we about as a nation? Are we about endless war, about uh, being king of the mountain, about, uh, you know, telling other nations how they should live? Or 
wouldn't it be nice to start focusing on the education of our people, put the resources into education and healthcare and and job creation and and safe cities and a cleaner environment and all those things that we can do within the within the boundaries of what we know as the United States of America. I, I you know to me politically it never made sense to just go all over the world, but with the media, <laughs> it's it's been and and I that was the area of study I had university with the media. It's always been pounding away at you know. America has to be the the vanguard of freedom for the world, and we're losing it here at home. Yeah, well, I, we have to stop there. We should also be clear we've lost almost all these wars going back to Vietnam, including Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, that was Dennis Kucinich, former presidential candidate, served eight terms in the House of Representatives before the Democratic Party pushed him out. I want to thank the Real News Network and its production team, Cameron Granadino, Adam Coley, and Kayla Rivera. You can find me at chrisedges.substack.com. 